The Letter. Written and directed by Daniel Ruiz Tyson. Episode 5. Dear Mum, not a day or barely a moment goes by without me thinking about you. I imagine this is the same for anyone that's lost parents. These recollections of the old life rarely hurt these days. Bereavements toughen you up in much the same way kebabs clog your arteries. I've essentially spent the last 14 years since your passing drinking coffee and annoying women with my propensity to overthink. I drink coffee and I think, or I don't think, but I drink coffee. This is what I do, Mum. Every day. I'm prone to overstirring my lattes with a tall spoon, particularly in the morning as the first slow thoughts of the day break through. Every time my spoon clinks in a tall glass, I'm reminded of Dad overstirring his coffee in his own glass, which is the only way to drink coffee. In a glass. You also had your glass, but unlike Dad, never used a saucer. Your glass was rounder, smaller too, though the difference between the glasses wasn't as big as the height difference between you and Dad, which upon divorcing you, he spitefully revealed, as his parting shot, had always shamed him. I say parting shot, but it was hardly a parting shot when you consider Dad only moved to the bedsit one floor down from ours. Twenty-two years on from that, I still don't see how, when he first came up with that bizarre idea, he never at any point thought, no, this just doesn't work. For some years, your coffee glass travelled with me to wherever I was living as I failed to lay down roots in one southwest London postcode after another. But I don't know where it is now. For so many years after Mayflower, I tried to keep so much of the bedsit, and especially you, with me. But my accommodation just got smaller and smaller. Windows disappeared from bathrooms. Mezzanine beds with ladders started to infiltrate my life. Women brought home presented with a ladder they had to scale before they could get into bed. I think this is what landlords and letting agents cunningly call small space solutions. Tiny spaces presented as rare opportunities that come at the extortionate costs that are breaking millions of Londoners. Ultimately, there was nowhere for me to keep all these keepsakes, except for a handful of mementos. The birthday card I never got to give you which I've kept as some macabre reminder of what happened that day, remains in its cellophane wrapping, unopened. I got it because of the multicoloured elephants on the cover, a reminder of your late-in-life obsession with all things elephantine, whose origins I never sought to ask. I only recall that these elephants, a mixture of wood, china and plastic, started appearing on the mantelpiece and on top of the fireplace, and that every time I looked, there always seemed to be more. Also still with me are a Spanish translation of Henry James's The Turn of the Screw. It was cruel of life to deny you the opportunity to read my favourite ever piece of literature. I kept your glasses too, possibly the most ghoulish memento of all, considering you were still clenching them in your hand when I found you. The glasses were, and this is years later, Mum, so don't take it personally, mocked by an ex-girlfriend of mine when she happened upon them in a box. And the elephants... I kept the elephants, Mum. All of them. Your older sister, my aunt, Dita, as we called her, got your false stenches. 
the two front teeth that the paramedics had removed when they were working on you. I only found out about this the same week I started doing this six-part comedy for a South London community radio station. Can you imagine the stress of launching a new comeback show and finding out your teeth had been around years after you'd gone, all on the same week? Here was me beating myself up for 13 years thinking I was weird for keeping all these things when Dita had your dentures all along. Sadly, the two separate museums never came together to hold a morbid exhibition under one roof. Dita, so good to me right from the day we lost you, never got over you. None of us did. But you see it on her. A tiny gaunt face under a blonde bubble perm, the like of which hasn't been fashionable since 1979. You passed away the day before what would have been your 58th birthday. Everything unravelled at Gideon's speed after that Friday. I think I used the guilt as an excuse to implode. The pieces of that self-destruction are scattered so far and wide that there is no single crash site. The wreckage of my life, like the Maudley Museum I co-curate, is in no one place. Thankfully, there was no black box flight recorder to retrieve, as that would only have confirmed pilot error. You never signing me up to Cubs or Scouts turned out to be a good thing, Mum. Because if I'd been more knowledgeable where not so concerned, I might have done something stupid in that first two years. After you were gone, I was a mess, Mum. A mess. I suppose I ought to begin by apologising for not visiting you much at the cemetery in recent years. If at all. Dita goes every week. I last accompanied her a couple of years ago. My addiction to the lattes here meant on the way to the cemetery I tried to pull a fast one by buying the cheaper chrysanthemums from a stall outside Stockwell Tube Station. My shameful frugal side figured that buying the less expensive flowers would leave me enough for an extra coffee that weekend. But twigging that I was scrimping on the flowers, Dita called me out, diplomatically reminding me that you never like chrysanthemums. I knew that. When you were alive, I remember I used to buy you flowers every Friday evening from a stall outside Clapham North Station, minutes from Mayflower, and very quickly you made clear your dislike of them. As I bought you the price your flowers Dita had suggested, I remember feeling disappointed that my now morally, not to mention financially crippling addiction to the lattes in the cafe, had reared its head in such an ugly manner. But I must confess, I was equally despondent that I would now not be able to have that extra latte that day. The cemetery should be about you, but it reminds me a lot of my final days with Dad, because we'd go there every Saturday in those first couple of years, when the loss was ridiculously intense. Dad went missing just a couple of summers after you. That was so weird. We found out in the end that he died the day he'd gone missing. Heart attack, like you out running in his polyester athletic shorts with the elastic waistline and notched side vent hems. He had no ID on him. All the weeks I'd been searching for him, he was already gone. I don't know if you would care about that beyond what it did to the rest of us. It's okay if you don't. I don't blame you. Dad made a lot of mistakes. To be fair to him though, without his help, I wouldn't have made it through the trauma of what happened that Friday. During the long nights of self-reproachment I regularly put myself through, I constantly thought about your struggle in those final moments and how at some point you would have realised I wasn't going to come up in time to save you. Dad, too, was consumed by guilt. I think that was him finally acknowledging the way he treated you. 
He started smoking again after 20 years. His black hair lost its colour and his first heart attack came within 18 months. You and Dad were just both wrong for each other and you'd both known it but never did anything till it was too late hiding behind that lazy excuse of staying together for the kids that adults use to stave off the pain of splitting up. You really should have left him, Mum, and led the life you deserved. Taking that decisive action would have spared you the insult about your shortness at the end too. In 2004, exhausted by four years of struggling to deal with losing you, and later Dad, especially you, Mum, I finally agreed to undergo bereavement counselling. But talking about you at that time was still way beyond me at that point. They told me in there that I couldn't be with anyone till i dealt with you. By week 14 of the 24 weeks, I'd moved in with a large-headed girl I'd met on week 3. Here was an opportunity to be honest with a professional who was trying to help me, and almost two-thirds of the way in, I was already lying to him. Right at the end of our final session, he absolutely rocked me with something he said until I realised the reason for his observation was entirely predicated on a number of untruths I'd fed him. I knew then that if I'd started crying, I was merely buying into my own deceit. You heard a noise that Friday. Yeah. In your letter to your mother, you write, I'd simply attributed the noise I heard to being just another sigh in a bedsit in which sighs ricocheted off those damp walls daily, and I continued with my lunch downstairs. The noise would play in my head on an endless loop for two years, like those repeats of friends on T4. I knew from the moment I saw you that you were gone. It was whilst you made your lunch that you heard this noise? It was, yeah. You weren't curious about the noise? We'd been arguing, or rather I had. I simply thought the noise was just her annoyed with me, sighing. Can I ask you what you'd been arguing about? I had a boiled peas from scratch for my lunch, but I didn't know whether I was meant to cover the peas when simmering them or not. I'd lived away from home the previous year, but coming back home, I'd just unlearned all the domestic skills I'd picked up. Mm. I was shouting upstairs to my mum so she could tell me. Spoilt that I was, you know, I expected her to drop everything she was doing and come straight downstairs like a typical Mediterranean mum attending to the every need of her molly-coddled son. But she never did. No. And that's when you heard the sigh. I heard the sigh and I figured that she was fed up with me. So I checked my behaviour and I made my lunch. You finished your lunch in the kitchen and then you went back upstairs? No. You still didn't go up? I wanted to make sure I wasn't in a bad mood when I went back upstairs. All the meetings, all the pressure, everything had been getting to me. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to be taking that out on her. My mum worked hard. She was up at five every morning to clean rich people's houses. She was entitled to enjoy her time at home, so I stayed downstairs. I washed up. I made sure I calmed myself down. And it was after that I went back up. I still replay the moment I found you, mum. How could I not? It's the biggest single moment of my life. Only cradling Lopez's head at the end provides any real serious competition to the site I walked in on that Friday afternoon. I swear to God, I knew going up those stairs that something was wrong. You'd been very quiet. Even as it unfolded, that moment seemed to play out in slow-mo. I knew straight away. You were slumped on the sofa, your head tilted to the right. 
I remember your peach red jumper. The glasses, a focal point of the soon-to-be museum set up after your passing, were in your right hand. The word search magazine, a long-standing hobby of yours, had fallen to one side of the sofa. I lifted you off the sofa, surprised at how heavy you suddenly were. I'd often picked you up and carried you, playfully mocking you for how small you were, as Dad had pointed out during the divorce proceedings, and I knew I could carry you easily. But I couldn't that Friday afternoon. I struggled to the floor with you. Your head smashed on the carpet as I lost my hold on you. Then, as I leant over your body with you flat on your back, I remember I wasted little time in mulling over what this meant for me. Thoughts that were too quick to come to the surface, and which shame me to this day. The laundrette on Landall Road, where, as kids, my sibling, my cousin and I would always clamber over the machines, was the first image to pop up into my head. I still remember the excitement of growing big enough to climb onto the taller tumble dryers, but I wasn't up for returning to that laundrette as an adult. I knew, though, that the two-minute route there from Mayflower, involving walking through just a couple of quiet residential Clapham North back streets, afforded me the privacy I sought, but that laundrette just held too many memories of you. Then I realised if I didn't go there, the nearest laundrette was the one a couple of hundred metres from Stockwell Station. This would involve walking down a main road with laundry bags. That was too public for me. I knew too many people in the area, many of whom would have been people that according to Dad should have long been dead. There was no way I'd be placing my washing bags on those dirty streets, so I would have found myself holding onto heavy bags of washing, a bit like those strongman contests where competitors hold onto car batteries at arm's length until all of my body was trembling, while those people would fix me with a look that said, You see this? You go tell your dad I'm still alive. I can't be sure that the stricken 999 call that followed came only after I'd exhausted all potential laundrette outcomes in my mind. There was a moment during that call where, advised by the control room operator at the other end of the line, I genuinely thought I'd saved your life. Momentarily convinced that I had, I figured my laundrette concerns would only be temporary. But I would realise all too soon that the only air coming out of you was the air I was putting into you as I gave you mouth to mouth, which in itself felt odd to be doing to my own mum. Realising that, I felt like a fool. Sometimes I wonder how long the emergency services would have hung on to the recording of my anguished voice before deleting the recording, keeping it perhaps to play on their training courses as a perfect example of how one of their operators calmly handled a typically panicked call from a man whose world was coming apart at that moment. On hearing my voice, trainees might think, my God, that man is nasal. It was only in the weeks and months after you were gone that I realised not how much I loved you, because I always knew I would never love anyone more than I loved you, but just how proud I was of you. You kept us together. You kept a roof over our heads, albeit a leaking one, and you were getting up at the crack of dawn until the day you died, showing a discipline and sense of responsibility that neither Dad, with his near two decades-long commitment to night school, nor myself had. I felt there was a little distance between us at the end, some mutual disappointment, you with me for being with late 90s X and realising I was growing up, and me with you for the obstacles you put in my way when I was trying to be an adult, a journey it's quite possible I never fully completed. We'd never had that before, and I don't know about you, 
but I didn't know how to resolve that. I just knew that I still needed you, Mum. You admit in your letter that you made a lot of mistakes once your mother passed away. To briefly go through some of those right now... We need to do this. I'd like to. I think our listeners would be interested. All right. You were escorted off the premises in one data entry job whilst wearing a white bowling shirt and a pair of white chinos. That's right. Kicked off another job for refusing to take part in a role-playing exercise. Never been big on the role-playing. Four nose jobs. I prefer to call them operations. And it was three. Two whilst my mum was still around. Three, right. Two evictions in the space of a month in 2003. At least 25 different flats. Mm. One broken engagement. I couldn't afford the ring. And you lived in a hotel for almost half of the year back in 2010. Did your mother have to be around for you not to have to make these mistakes, Daniel? Bereavement is a part of life. People lose loved ones all the time. Not all of them fall apart. Losses, my writing career coming apart, a fire, and I guess no end of bad choices on my part all conspired to put me in a hotel, Mum. For the first time in my life, I had no confidence in my faith to muddle through something. I had an epiphany in that hotel, Mum. I woke up early one December Monday morning feeling very altered. I never forgot that morning. Three years on, I still carry it with me. I feel slower. People tell me it's an effort to be around me. But it might be a good thing. For me, at least. Maybe I need something like this to keep me from making more mistakes. I'm not too sure when that weird downward spiral started. In early 2008, I was working in Victoria, near your old work in Chester Square, in fact, when I happened across a scene where armed police had surrounded a car parked right outside the coach station. London was still on high alert in the wake of the mid-noughties bombings. Eventually, with the driver not emerging, an officer opened one door, and one of the fattest men I've ever seen simply fell out of the car sideways and onto the road. I was as shocked as the officers. There was no reason for me to be as affected as I was, but I just couldn't shake the image from my mind for a while, not unlike the dog stall visuals on Clapham Common that plague my sleep. It seemed to be a staging post, ushering in the avalanche of losses coming my way. Even now I still think of that fat guy, tumbling out of a car onto a pavement, though to be fair... This was SW1 rather than the filthy streets of Lambeth. But regardless of postcode, he was all alone, like Dad, his family with no idea of the news they were going to be getting. Three months later, in an eerie reenactment of what happened with Dad, his middle brother went missing in northern Spain. And well, like Dad, it took a while to find out what had happened. And that didn't turn out good either. I had to give the news to Dad's older brother, Tito Cristobal, the one you always got on with, who used to dress up as Tarzan at family gatherings. I'm good at giving bad news, Mum. I've got the right face for it. The expressions are even more limited since all the rhinoplasty. Soon as I gave Tito Cristobal the news, he just gave up living. I saw it. I felt it. I knew it wouldn't be long. So I started getting myself ready for that. Your uncle's passing has left you the last male ruiz on your dad's side. You've hit middle age. 
You're single, you're childless, and with all due respect, nothing in this interview suggests you're a catch. That can't be easy. It's a weird feeling to know the lineage is set to die with me. Does it scare you a little? I don't know. Part of me likes the idea that a hundred years from now, someone might look at the family tree and it just stops with me. They might be thinking, who was this guy? I'll do some research, uncover the financially crippling latte addiction, the rhinoplasties. The self-absorbed little heard of series for a South London community radio station. That too. Losing Tito Cristoba prepared me for Lopez dying. Cancer, 37. Losing Lopez was even harder, though for a long time I tried to continue as if nothing had happened. I'd learned from the mistakes I made with you and was able to tell both Tito Cristoba and Lopez before they died that I loved them. As time goes on, you realise it makes a little difference, though how I wish I'd not been wearing an inappropriate bright green top when I told Lopez. Do you ever wonder what life would have been like had your mum survived that day? It would have been very different. I have these uh, nightmares sometimes in which I'm with my mum and she survived that first heart attack. Where are you in these dreams? We're back in the bedsit or sometimes we're at family gatherings and uh, I never leave her side. We're aware that our time together now is limited. Sense of sadness is overwhelming. At these get-togethers we make light of how I was downstairs eating stuffed squid when my mum had her first heart attack. Mm, squid. Each time we tell the story, it alters slightly, become funnier, with newer, carefully rehearsed gags masquerading as banter thrown in. A few things are spontaneous with me. But deep down, we're both frightened. We're simply waiting for the next heart attack. And when it comes, I can never save her. I'm glad it never happened like that. What happened with us, the way we lived, will probably never leave me. I stopped fighting that a long time ago. I just wanted to lift us out of our poverty. I didn't like that house. I hated being in that kitchen when it was raining and the water was coming in through the ceiling. That's why I never learned how to cook properly. I just couldn't handle being in there. I only wanted to be able to earn enough for you to stop working. You deserved a better life and the pressure of not giving you that was hurting me. I'd been promising you since I was 17 that I'd make enough money for you to stop working soon. In fact, I told you neither of us would have to work. I'd be retired by 22, I said. I had no right to be making such a promise when I was still a year away from beginning what, 23 years later, is still my unfinished novel. But I went even further, promising the same week that Tears for Fears released their epic new track, The Seeds of Love, that we'd be living in some riverside apartment. I'd even identified these apartments just on the other side of Vauxhall Bridge in Grosvenor Road. We'd enjoy days out in the countryside too, watching a game of village cricket, despite being aware that neither of us enjoyed cricket. You kept your counsel, choosing wisely not to make me aware that a man living with his mum, albeit one in a fancy riverside apartment in central London, would not be a catch. Maybe you figured you'd take your chances, get into the flat with me before I met anyone, and then battle for my loyalty with your future daughter-in-law as and when she arrived on the scene. So let me get this right. You're living in a bedsit. You're sharing a bathroom with 13 other people. Yeah. Your dad divorces your mum, citing their height difference as a factor. Yeah. He leaves the bedsit. 
he moves to the bedsit on the next floor down. But you're still promising your mom that you're going to be retired at 22. I was an optimistic young man. You must have been feeling the pressure when you hit 21 and you're a year away from this supposed retirement. And you're thinking, man, I got 12 months to pull this off. How about that dream? Come on, mum. You know, that dream. A couple of nights before your funeral, where your ghost or whoever that was walked into the bedsit to collect your naked body to spare us pain for your burial. And your ghost, let's assume that's what it was, walked past my four-year-old self weeping on the steps. You stopped to ask me why I was crying. But I couldn't speak. You said I wasn't to blame for what happened. What was that, Mum? Explain it to me, because it didn't feel like a dream. Was that you, Mum? Without you, there's been a void that I've never been able to fill. Lots of people have come in and out of my life, and maybe I wasn't able to hold on to them because of what happened almost 14 years ago. Maybe. Girls tried, one in particular, but she was too much like you. Too good, too soft, too selfless. Many of the women I was serious with had large skulls, unlike you, your small head being in proportion to your body. There were a lot of women. I don't know where that confidence came from, given my innate shyness and inability to dance. Do you know how hard it is to meet women if you can't dance? I still can't dance, Mum. I don't care too much, though I recognise I might have bought myself some more time with the last girl, the one that mocked your glasses, if I'd been able to dance. Dancing was a big thing for her. That girl, she saw me lose too much and left. In a strange kind of way, I think that made me. I realised I needed to change, that I needed to be with a woman for the right reasons. All too often, I wanted the new life that came with them, more than I actually wanted them. A few days before you died, I'd had a strange dream about Mickey Boyd, totally out of the blue, after not seeing him for what at that point was 11 years. I was so unsettled by that dream that I jotted it down in my notebook. I still have my notebook from that day. It reads... 14th February 2000. Dream about Mickey Boyd. Buffon. Late 90s mullet. Big nose. Oh, definitely him. He looked like he was trying to warn me about something. That dream troubled me. I kept remembering how at school he was the first friend I'd known to lose a parent. You and Michael Boyd first contacted one another at the end of 2001 after 12 years out of touch. Yeah. Your friend had just become a father for the first time. Straight away, you tell him about the dream. In hindsight, don't you think you should have waited a little longer before telling him about the dream? I should have waited. I'm just not a very patient guy. I mean, it's not really something you tell someone you haven't seen for 11 years. Hey, I had a dream about you. You were warning me about something and my mom died a few days later. I'm aware that towards the end I stopped telling you how much I loved you. That I maybe even stopped showing you that. I could see your health wasn't great and that time was running out. Which is why I was working so hard at the time to give you what you deserved. Well aware too that I was meant to have retired five years previously. Every night I would look in on you in that cold room, asleep under a pile of blankets and it would break my heart to see you like that. I'd like to apologise too for that way too sculpted goatee I sported at your funeral. 
It was inappropriate. If it's any consolation, I left Dad's funeral in the back of an open-topped white sports car. As for Lopez's, actually it's better if I don't tell you what happened there. I try and think of you in happier times. There weren't many, sadly, but I was fortunate to have you for a mum. I can feel certain things disappearing now, though. My recollection of your voice, your smell, your wonderful sense of humour. I suppose that little macabre museum I put together of your keepsakes are probably not the best way in which to recall your life and what you are to me. And sometimes I just need to see this stuff to remind me that you were real, that I am here because of you. You went too soon, Mum, too young. I would give up everything I have in my life just to have five more minutes with you. Admittedly, the post-2008 recession wardrobe's not brilliant and I can't use my new Google Nexus 4 because my data plan is so limited, so losing those things wouldn't be devastating blows. But I would give all of these things up to be able to hold your hand and kiss you and tell you all of the things I never told you. Because I think that would have helped me get through the last decade and a half a bit better. I have never loved anyone more than I loved you, and I never will. Danny. In the letter, inner US talk show host was played by Kate Sawyer. Daniel's notebook was played by Delia Ryan, with Daniel Ruiz Tyson as himself. The engineer was Annie Lloyd. The music is by Ignacio Lothano. For more news on the letter, visit the blog, theletterofficialblog.wordpress.com. Thank you.